when Jesus Christ, when he suffered for us like mm-hmm. he did, that was a change, right? Many Christians are taught that God is utterly immutable, that he can't change in any way. But God the Father loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And Jesus Christ suffered for us. He became sin. He became a curse for us, as Paul writes. And so that was different. God the Father had never before poured out his wrath on the Son. And Paul writes that then Christ was justified in the Spirit. So God the Father and God the Son went through so much suffering for us because they love us. But that's not happening today. But open theism doesn't answer the question of God interacting with man, because that's the context of our discussion, the context of the open theist argument and discussion, yeah. and the reason why I believe it's a twist, a heresy right. of true scripture. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. Notice now, Pastor Ed Taylor of Calvary Chapel Aurora, he's more comfortable switching the subject matter to mankind. And what we have done at Denver Bible Church, at Bob and Yart Live, is that we've taken the standard open theism position, and we have refocused it within the Godhead, showing typically what happens is that Christians who are open theists will say God made us as free will agents. And I don't like free will because that's the only kind of will there is. So God made us with a will. And so therefore, we could make decisions, and those decisions will alter the future. Like if you decide not to have a glass of water with your lunch, well, then the future would be somewhat different than if you decided to have a glass of water. So if you forego the water or you take the water, that affects the future. To some level, it'll affect the future, believe me. So what Christians often do is they say, well, you're demeaning God in some way because you think you have to define God based on man's freedom. And so we've taken that and refocused the open theism defense to say, sure, we'd be happy to talk about mankind, but let's just talk about God and his freedom. You guys think it's demeaning to God to make way for man's freedom. So let's then just talk about God's freedom. And God's ability, God's capability. Is God able to make a decision that can affect the future? Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the term open theism, why I think it's a pretty good label for the open theist movement. I have pulled up in front of me this book, Responding to the Challenge of Neotheism, The Battle for God by Norman L. Geisler. And Norman L. Geisler is a theologian that I love to hate. I love him in the sense that he lays down his metaphysics. He understands his metaphysics. He details his metaphysics. He's not shy about his metaphysics. He'll say what he believes, which is so rare in critics of open theism. Either they don't want to state their own metaphysics or they're just ignorant of their own metaphysics. Norman Geisler understands the metaphysics, and that's why he's so afraid of open theism, because open theism at its core challenges his metaphysics. And that thus the title of this book, The Battle for God. He understands that open theism at its core is about the nature and character of God. Is God someone who's close? Is God someone who is pure immutability? or pure simplicity, or outside of time, someone who can't react, someone who's impassable, someone who's a pure act, as Norman Geisler would have him, 
Or is God the God of the Bible who could interact, who could feel, who could hurt with us, who could love with us, who could cry with us or over us? Is God someone who could respond and engage in a give-and-take relationship? Is God open to new experiences that he's never had before? Can he do new things, think new thoughts? Is he a closed God or is he an open God? Fundamentally, at its core, open theism is about the nature and character of God. In fact, there's a book out there that's called The Nature and Character of God by Winky Prattney. And it, it, I thought when I first picked it up, I didn't know the guy was open theist. And I started reading through it. I'm like, Let, let's, let's see what this guy says. And I'm just reading it. I'm like, this is, this is really good. And it's talking about all these different verses about uh, God's emotions and who God is as a person. I'm like, this is really good stuff. And it turns out the guy's open theist, which makes sense, which makes sense. But Roger Olson also picks up on this the battle for God, when he starts talking about the open theism a controversy. Let's pull up what Roger Olson says. To me, this is a bigger, more important issue than open theism. That is because for me and for many Arminians, the key to Arminianism is the character of God. That is what primarily distinguishes Arminianism from Calvinism. Arminians all believe that the God of Calvinism cannot be understood logically, to be perfectly good and loving, and that only Arminianism, whether under that label or not, makes it logically possible to view God as perfectly good without going to universalism, as in the case of Barth and some others in the Reformed tradition. So Roger Olson gets it. Fundamentally, this debate between Calvinists and Arminians is about who God is. And so who's Arminians' allies in this? It's the open theists. It's not the Calvinists. Calvinists and Arminians are at different sides of the spectrum. And a lot of the arguments that are used against open theism, why open theism is a heresy, why we should reject open theism, why open theists reject inerrancy, are the same exact arguments that Calvinists use against Arminians. Arminians, Calvinists are not your friends, and open theists are your natural allies against these Calvinists. Calvinists want to believe in a static God of pure actuality outside of time that cannot be influenced, cannot be interacted with. Pure immutability and passability. Read their writings. Read what they say. This is the God that they are proposing. In opposition to this, open theists are presenting a God who's loving and relational and good and interacts and cares for people and wants the best for his creation and reaches out to humanity, and strives to create a love relationship. These are the options. But back to Norman Geisler, and I always kind of uh, confuse Geisler with uh, Ronald Nash. I actually met Ronald Nash when I was at Summit Ministries in uh, the 1990s, I think I was there, like 98, 99, something like that. But I met him, and I was just a young teenager at the time, and I sat down at a table with Ronald Nash. I'm talking about open theism. Well, you know, know, God might not... uh, you know, know the future. And he's like, oh, those open theists. And he goes on this big rant about about uh, at God in the garden with Adam and Adam's walking around and God says, where are you? And he said, open theists will say, God didn't know where he's at. I'm sitting here thinking, I've never heard that. I'm an open theist. I've never heard anything of the sort. Anyone has ever claimed that. And uh, so I'm just thinking that because I'm like a teenager at the time. And he's like this old guy. And he's like, but that's about present knowledge. I think it what what the, what kind of straw bat argument is this? But that that was funny, and uh, Ronald Nash 
is labeled by Norman Geisler under the label of neotheism because apparently Ronald Nash wrote some sort of book on like pantheism or something like that, which which was sympathetic, which made Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler seems to be very full of himself, so it made Norman Geisler throw throw Ronald Nash under the label of neotheism. But Norman Geisler, he he is very egocentric. And he thinks that he could just throw around these terms and coin these terms and label entire movements. So he coined this term neotheism for open theism because he wants to say this open theism stuff, it's brand new in history and no one's ever heard of this before. Which to me is uh, very insane because this open theism is the history of the church. Open theism is the history, all of human history. Uh, Neoplatonism, this, this Platonist metaphysics, that's fairly brand new. You had some of it with Plato, and you had the development of it. You didn't have it in its present form until after 100 AD through the Neoplatonists like Plotinus and Clement of Alexandria. You didn't find the current form of Neoplatonism anywhere in the world. But uh, So open theism is history's default position on the nature and character of God, and we have uh, our podcasts on omniscience and omniscience throughout different cultures and different uh, deity sets, uh, different religions throughout the world, their ideas of what omniscience was. And in the Israelite religion, it is open theism. It is open theism. Is their view. Like everyone else, everyone else in history were open theists in their religion. It's only in this weird Neoplatonic tradition that people are getting these other ideas of omniscience, which are, are not default to human history. But I like Norman Geisler's work as long as he's not telling bold-faced lies like he does in Creating God in the Image of Man, where he says in 1 Samuel 15, he said, well, these are different words for repent. When it says God is not a man that he should repent, that's a different word for when God says, I repent. So he seems to have just fabricated this out of nothing. I don't know where he would have got this and why he would have thought that. Maybe he's misreading the verse. Is he pulling up the original Hebrew and just not understanding can he not read hebrew did he not have access to to any bible software to quick verify these claims but he made the claim and it, it was false and uh, norman geisler seems to be fairly sloppy with when he's referencing the bible like in his creating god in the image of man he uses the i am who i am to to go through all his list of attributes all his pure actuality pure simplicity timelessness omniscience, omnipotence, all that stuff. He just links all of that to that one verse. Whereas in context, that verse is about God being the God of history, God being who he wants to be in relation to his chosen people, which is the context of the verse, but you get nothing about the metaphysics in the verse. But people are desperate for metaphysical references in the Bible, so they'll take anything. But back to the point. This this is about uh, Norman Geisler wanting to relabel Open theism as neotheism. Oh, something that's new is scary, and we don't like the new stuff. The new stuff scares us, and things need to be old to be true. You know, that type of logic. And uh, he fails miserably that the term has not caught on, except for a couple uh, maybe followers of of uh, Norman Geisler. But uh, otherwise, it's a pretty dead term. But what, what shows you the importance of terminology if whoever controls the labels controls the ideas. And we've talked about this before. The progressives, the liberals in America, they're different than the liberals in Europe because the liberals in America are these leftists who have hijacked the term. And they said, oh, liberal's a good thing. You know, you're liberal with your gifts. That means you give a lot of gifts. 
you're liberal. That means you love liberty, you know, liberal liberty. But the leftists in the United States hijacked the term and they said, well, now this is going to apply to all our progressive causes that we want the force of the state to enforce all these causes. So if you go to Europe and use the same term liberal, what it means is libertarian. In America, it's been hijacked because terminology matters. Labeling your group matters. But labeling is important. Imagery is very important. Remember back to our Scott Adams book review. We reviewed his book, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Do Not Matter. And we talked about images and Trump's image and how he won the American election. Like it or hate it, Trump talked a lot about a wall. This is a big visual image and it resonated with his base. They could all imagine it in their own minds, their own wall. He didn't talk details. He didn't give specifics. Oh, it's going to be however many feet high. It's going to be made of concrete. He allowed each individual in their own mind to construct their own mental walls. It wasn't until after the election he said, well, this wall might actually just be some walls and then some areas of surveillance because a wall across the entire southern border of the United States is fairly impractical. And I think he understands that. I think he uses a lot of hyperbolic language. And a lot of his uh, base understands his hyperbolic language and they're in on the joke. So like uh, when the president of Mexico said, oh, I'm not going to pay for the wall. And Trump said, the wall just got 10 feet higher. That, uh, that was huge applause. Everyone's laughing and everyone understood that it's hyperbolic and, and Trump it does, isn't really, he's, he's telling a joke. And uh, people who don't understand Trump or Trump's humor or who Trump is as a person, they would take it seriously and they get all offended. Trump derangement syndrome. But uh, those on the inside, it was hilarious. But this imagery allowed him to get elected because this imagery was something tangible that people could grab and they could think of and they could hold in their own mind. And if he got too detailed on the specifics of his plan, he would lose that imagery. It would be too detailed and it wouldn't allow the user, the individual listener, to form those images in their own minds. Here's what Scott Adams writes. A good general rule is that people are more influenced by visual persuasion, emotion, repetition, and simplicity than they are by details and facts. So just on a persuasion level, open theism resonates very strongly with people because open means love, open means relation, open means caring, open means someone who's who's willing to experience new things. Closed people are the people you don't want to be around. Closed people are the people who, you know, you, you don't want to interact with because they're so reserved and they're to themselves and they're not giving. The open people are the ones who are, are outgoing and create relationships and want these experiences. So what's the opposite of open theism? It's closed theism. Do you want to be an open theist? Do you want to be a closed theist? The linguistical high ground in open theism is pretty strong. You don't want to be associated with being closed off. But back to Norman Geisler's book, let's see what he says open theism is or neo-theism is. Recently, this is Norman Geisler, recently a group of Christian thinkers carved out a new concept of God. Oh no, it's new. Apparently this is brand new, never before known in uh, Norman Geisler's ideas in his uh, studying of history, right? By combining aspects of panentheism or process theology with traditional theism. Who did that? Who has been influenced by process theology? Maybe Thomas Ord a little bit 
and maybe buoyed a little bit, but that's stretching it. That is stretching it quite a lot. And this, uh, that's poor scholarship on your part, Geisler. This view is sometimes called the openness view of God or free will theism because it stresses that a libertarian view of human freedom leaves the future open to us and to God, which is, it's good. He points this out. And to God, that, that is the fundamental issue at stake here. Neotheism has adopted important dimensions of process theology. What are you talking about? And for this reason poses a serious threat to the classical theism that evangelical Christianity embraces. Look at this uh, fear tactics. Oh, this process, process theology apparently is this big boogeyman. It's like when the Calvinists are interacting with anyone, anyone at all that they don't like, they'll say, you're a Pelagian, like like everyone, like everyone in the world except for Calvinists are like Pelagians. And then so somehow that turns that into like a valid insult that, uh, oh, no, I don't want to be a Pelagian. I better just convert to Calvinism. Uh, I don't think so. That's not a very good uh, argument. <laughs> and that's what he's trying to do. And and this is this book is written to his supporters, his audience. It's It's not written to be something that's trying to convert a neutral critic. And you can see that in how he phrases things and, and how he writes. This is him introducing open theism to his, his own core audience. It presents one of the most serious threats to Christian orthodoxy. Since they represent the new kid on the block. <laughs> what is that, a reference to like a 90s band? Uh, the new kid on the, maybe in the 80s, I don't know. I didn't listen to the new kids on the block. The new kid on the block. Neotheists work hard to make their ideas clear, distinct, and appealing, since neotheists want to be accepted as members in good standing within the orthodox theist camp. They have put their best foot forward in describing their view. Oh no, they got these these hidden crazy views that uh, you know they're just hiding. They're just deep down secrets. So don't listen to what they say. They got a lot deeper stuff. Neotheists list five characteristics of their position. Maybe we do. Do we? Uh, do we? Do we list five? And he quotes Pinnock, and Pinnock is, I guess, a good open theist source, but he's he seems to be at the fringe for for his uh, philosophical takes on open theism. So always check your sources and uh, make sure you got a couple if you want to try to represent all open theists by by uh, some sort of list or some sort of view. You might want to take a wider survey of open theism because open theism just revolves around the nature and character of God in certain respects. So number one, he lists this, God not only created this world ex nihilo, but can and at times does intervene unilaterally in earthly affairs. Well, or doesn't take that position. God chose to create this number two. God chose to create us with incompatibilistic libertarian freedom, freedom over which he cannot exercise total control. In a sense, well, God can't, well, God could probably control our bodies to do stuff, but yeah, just by the definition of libertarian freedom, if someone's not free to do other stuff, if, if you're controlling that libertarian freedom, like exhaustive control over it, it's not libertarian freedom anymore. By definition, that's a, that's a, that's a tautology. Three, God so values freedom, what? God so values freedom, the moral integrity of free creatures and a world in which such integrity is possible 
that he does not normally override such freedom, even if he sees it as producing undesirable results. It seems to me that in the biblical record, like it, it's an afterthought. It's it's like not even a consideration to create a world of robots that just go through menial, uh, deterministic patterns. That uh, it's not even a concept that's that's posed in the Bible. It seems to be the default of creation that God, God's like, okay, let's create these guys and then let's see what they do. It's not like, oh, God values freedom. So that's like a conscious thing that he interjects into creation. It's the default. It's like there is not even consideration for Calvinism. Four, God always desires our highest good, both individually and corporately, and thus is affected by what happens in our lives. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. God always desires our highest good both individually and corporately. Well, I guess in a general sense, maybe not like individually on for every person, the people he sends to hell, does he value their highest good by sending them to hell for all of eternity? Or is he giving up on them at the, um, I don't know. I don't know that one is sketchy. Five, God does not possess exhaustive knowledge of exactly how we will utilize our freedom although he may well at times be able to predict with great accuracy the choices we will freely make. Okay. So scrolling down to Norman Geisler's issues with this, he, he gives us a great little chart here, and he talks about theism versus neotheism, and a lot of this is very telling. So under emotions, he says, oh, theism posits that God is impassable. Nothing can hurt or act upon him. He acts out of his grace and mercy. And neotheism, neotheism, oh, neo. And cue the matrix, I guess. God is passable. He can be hurt and acted upon. We can make God feel pain. That sounds pretty biblical to me. Okay. Skipping down to simplicity. Uh, theism apparently states this. God is simple, not composed of parts. He is absolutely and individually one in essence. What are you talking about? What are you talking? Is that a biblical view? Is that theism? That's uh, That's Platonism. Sounds like Platonism to me. It's not biblical theism. I think you're in the wrong religion, Norman Geisler. If you want something else, you might want to open up your Plotinus, not, not the Bible here. And then theism says, God is composite, made of parts. Yeah. And uh, William Lane Craig also agrees with this, by the way, that God's not simple. William Lane Craig rejects this. Changeableness. Okay, so let's let's hear what theism says about God's changeableness. God is immutable. He does not change. He is perfect. And any change would be for the worse. I think that comes straight from uh, Plato's Republic. I don't think that's in the Bible. And so here's what neotheism, neotheism says. God is mutable. Change does not necessarily mean imperfection. Okay, well, yeah, if you're adopting their categories, I think, I think that's a categorical mistake that open theists tend to make. We adopt their categories of thinking about God. Oh, God must be the most perfect being that we could imagine. It, okay, so who gets to determine that? That sounds fairly subjective. And what happens when we adopt those categories is we start thinking in their mindset and we try to fashion God in their mindset, but in open theist terms. It sounds like a bad idea all around to be adopting their mindsets and, and just just uh, it's conceding the debate before the debate's been had. But there's open theists who have done this and done it successfully. Richard Swinburne is a very famous and influential, maybe the most famous uh, metaphysicist, and he's an open theist, and uh, he argues these things. 
I went to this randomness conference that Thomas J. Ord helped host. And all of those guys, they were all interested in this stuff. What makes God the most perfect God? And these guys would get like formulas and they'd write these formulas on the board. Like the God most, it's like God is an input output robot designed to make him the most perfect being in their concept of what a perfect being must entail. And uh, I just reject, categorically reject all those ways of talking about God. Authority and rule. This is what Norman Geisler says. God sovereignly reigns over all things. Not one atom in the universe is outside his control. Effectively or permissively, God allows us to participate in his plan of salvation, but he does not need us. Okay. In neotheism, God is sovereign, but he needs our help to be able to carry out his plan of salvation. <laughs> that's what that's what I always say. I was like, God needs our help. We need to help God with salvation. <laughs> At, there, there's a direct quote by me, so put those in quote marks and just publish it everywhere because that's definitely something that I claim and I claim often and I, I totally believe that God needs our help to be able to carry out his plan of salvation. That's funny. That's funny. So John the Baptist was an open theist and uh, the Jews came to him and they thought they didn't have to reform their ways and they'd still be accepted by God because they're Jews, of course. And God has unilateral promises to the Jews. And so John the Baptist says to them, he's like, don't you think that uh, just because you have Abraham as your father, you're going to be saved from the wrath to come? God, if he wanted to fulfill his promises to Abraham, he could raise new children of Abraham from these stones. So don't be assured in yourself. God is innovative. God can accomplish despite how you think God must act. You know, John the Baptist was an open theist. That's so funny. I've never heard a Calvinist respond to me on this point. I I give it often. I, I tell them about it. It's like, that's literally his point is that God is innovative And although you might be like, oh, how can God do this and this if he doesn't know the future and control everything? And the answer is God's innovative, as John the Baptist's answer. And they don't don't read the Bible as if they're in the mindset of the speakers, trying to figure out what is the mindset of the speaker in relation to God? How does the speaker view God? All that is second to their philosophy that they impose on God. They don't care what the speaker thinks about God because they have in their mind how they want God to be. God must fit their little formulas that they write on the little whiteboard. Power. This is uh, theism apparently says this. God is omnipotent. Or uh, I know Jonathan Pritchett made fun of me for saying omnipotent. Uh, an omnipotent is uh, where, where he thinks that I should be saying instead. But I'll probably keep saying omnipotent. Because potency, you know, I don't know, and omni is all omnipotent. I don't know. It works. He can do anything that does not contradict his nature. He gives but does not give away power. His power is infinite. Oh, man, what? Sounds so good. What? Just you just infinite power. That's great. Neotheism. This is apparently what neotheists believe. God is omnipotent. Uh-huh. Omnipotent. He can do all things that are not contradictory. He gives away power, thus he is not infinite in power. What? He gives but does not give away power in theism versus he gives away power, thus he is not infinite in power. Oh, this is bad. This is bad. 
Uh, let's talk about fallibility. Apparently, this is a category we need to care about. So in theism, apparently, God is infallible. He cannot err in any respect. But in neo-theism, the scary new kids on the block, you know, the back streets back for life, God is fallible. He can err. And the scripture states that he has erred. Well, yeah, the, the Bible does. I just just gloss over that. All these things should end with that statement under neotheism. And the Bible says he does, you know, because that's the biblical view. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian. There's nothing forcing people to be a Christian. So if the Bible says one thing and you don't want to accept it, you know, there's other options out there. And and I wouldn't fault anyone for that. If uh, you don't like what the Bible says, you don't, you don't have to be a Christian. But that's our guy. That's that's Norman Geisler. And he is very worked up about open theism because it's fundamentally an assault on the nature and character of God. It poses something brand new that's radical, that uh, it sets out to undermine all his metaphysics that he cares deeply about. And he writes about it. So I do suggest getting his books. I do suggest reading his books, Creating God in the Image of Man and This Battle for God. Both important readings in in open theism. Whether or not we agree with his conclusions, we, we need to be able to respond to their arguments. But look at what he tries to do. He tries to hijack open theism and label it as neotheism. Why? For rhetorical effect. Oh, it's new. It's scary. It's new. It's it's novel. It should be rejected because someone just made it up in their own mind. It doesn't have historicity to it. Whereas the term open theism. It tells the listener that God is open, God reacts, God responds, God interacts, God can have change, God can learn new things, God can have new experiences, God can create, God is innovative, God is the living God. The Bible describes God over and over as the living God. That sounds like open theism to me. And so that's that's the term I like. I like that open theism uh, co-opted this term very early in open theism's modern incarnation, because I think that term will carry open theism pretty far, farther than any of these other terms. So free will theism, well, that's about human beings or whatever. But open theism, we could frame about God. God is open. Thus the name of the blog, thus the name of the podcast, Who is God? inherently at his core at his core being who is god all right thanks for listening if you have any questions or comments feel free to put that on this uh, youtube video on this uh, podcast or or even on the facebook group god is open thank you for listening